2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, <coughs> Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon's son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also descend with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I'll stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria, and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day." Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mesholameth, the daughter of Haraz of Jotba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, 
your prophet Ezekiel looked out on a valley of dry bones. And yet when he saw the Spirit of the Lord come, the bones came to life. Lord, would you use your word to revive us again? Lord, as we just sang, would we have a growing passion for thee? And even as we hear these words, would you stir us to love you more? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, William Shakespeare is the most famous writer of plays, and often his plays are split into two categories. Either the play is a tragedy, which typically, at least for Shakespeare, the play ends with a stage littered with dead people. Or the play is a comedy, not necessarily what we hear when we hear a comedy, but meaning that the ending is happy. But people wonder not just about Shakespeare's plays, but of life. Is life one big comedy, again, not like ha-ha, but one big situation where it ends well, or is life one big tragedy where no matter what happens, life is going to end poorly? Recently, a study was done, and 65% of Americans think the world is getting worse. 23% think neither better or worse, and only 6% think the world is getting better, which of course leaves some who have no idea what's going on. But by these numbers, it's very clear that many people are pessimistic. They are saying, basically, we live in a great tragedy. Things are getting worse. They're going to get worse. And this morning, we come to this passage about King Manasseh. And if you remember from before King Hezekiah, you'll remember that Hezekiah was one of the best kings that reigned. He got rid of so much idolatry. He got rid of the high places. And yet... What did it even matter? He's barely in the grave, and his son is undoing all the good work that he did. It's as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2, What's the point of all my work if after me a fool will come and ruin it all? Is there any meaning or purpose or end to this life? Are we just in a circular path of history that it just cycles over and over and over? If there is some end or destination, will it be a good one or a bad one? Well, this morning we see two horrible tragedies, but then we'll conclude, be a very short section at the end, with the story having the conquering of tragedy. But in the first nine verses, we see the tragic actions. Verses one through nine. We have the tragic actions of Manasseh. Again, he comes on the end of this really good reign of his father, Hezekiah. And Manasseh began to reign when he was only 12, and he reigned for 55 years. Now, if you go and you study all these numbers, it seems most likely that he began to reign when his father was six. So he had a co-regency. But whatever the case may be, in this case, the apple did fall far from the tree. For Manasseh, unlike Hezekiah, does not do what pleases God. You know, this is a tragedy that we see throughout scriptures in that there are faithful fathers who do not pass on the faith to their children. For example, in 1 Samuel 2, you may remember the prophet Eli. He was a good prophet, but verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
And the passage goes on to tell, when people came to give their sacrifices, these men would take the choice meat, not the meat that was given to them as Levites, but they would take the meat that they wanted, the better portions. And when godly men would say, no, no, don't do that. That is for God. We're told that they would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. First Samuel 2 goes on to say that not only do they fill their lust for their belly, but they also use their positions of power to fill their lust with women. And so, you know, due to this, God raised up Samuel, the prophet who came and he ruled Israel well. But then at the end of his life, first Samuel, it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. You know, how can it be that two great men of God could have such wicked sons? Or here, we have Hezekiah, who leads a mostly righteous son, and then he has a son who leads the nation into tragic sins. Well, how can this happen? Well, it's because while our actions are important, and they are the means by which God normally works, our actions are not determinative. What I mean by that is our actions don't 100% determine the outcome. Now, many people get discouraged. Well, if my actions alone aren't going to determine what's going to happen, then that's depressing. But let me offer you an alternative. It is actually good news that what you want to happen doesn't always happen. You know, Think about your life. How many people in here at one point were praying desperately for something to happen? You really wanted God to do it, and He didn't allow it. And then a few years later, you said, Thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. You know, I thought I wanted this, and it seemed perfect, and it ended up, if I had had that happen, that would have been horrible. Or sometimes we get exactly what we work for, and we know this is going to be it. And later we regret, why did I put all that effort towards that? That made my life worse. You know, we can't see all the ramifications and all the things that will happen due to our decisions. We need someone who can see through time, who can see everything to guide us. Who can determine everything, and that is God. So we should give thanks that we don't determine everything. God does. He is a good Father. So yes, we should make plans. We should act. And yet we should realize and praise God that He directs and establishes our steps. Now the implications of this are many, but I'll briefly comment on two. First, and I've said this before, but I've got to be hesitant to say it. We've got to be very hesitant to say things like this. Can you believe what that kid did? Well, they don't learn those things except at home. Now, if we raise hands, probably all of us have said that at some time. And yes, it is true that there are certain bad behaviors that children have to learn from others. And you think there's no way they could know to say that or to do that unless it was modeled. And yet, are there any parents who say, you know, we're going to the supermarket and, honey, if you don't get me what I want, I'm going to just fall down in the aisle and I'm going to scream. And I'm going to kick my feet on the ground. No parents have modeled, this is how to throw a temper tantrum when you don't get that candy bar that you want. And yet, somehow, kids learn how to do it. You know, we, everything we have, that we do, is not exactly modeled for us. So, 
we should be careful when we say, oh, what are those parents like? That kid wouldn't be doing that unless they had done that first. But second, this should humble us as parents, for there's no formula for producing the right kind of child. There's no, like, perfect schooling choice. Or if I can just have my kids have all these experiences. Or if I just follow this model of parenting. Or they memorize these verses, then they will turn out right. And sadly, some people have not thought that. They have thought, if I do this type of schooling, if we make these choices, if we do these things as a family, our kids will be like this. And then when their kids don't turn out like that, they get bitter and angry. God, I made all these sacrifices, and why are my children the way I thought? Well, we need the humility of a farmer. What does a farmer do? He first goes and he prepares the soil, and then he plants the seed, and then he removes the weeds. And then at the end of the day, what does he have to do? God, would you send the rain? Now, the farmer did not go back to the beginning and go, well, God's going to have to send the rain, so honey, what show you want to watch today? He knew that God works through means, but he's humble enough to realize, but yet God is ultimately the one who's going to have to act. And so we should all be people of prayer. God, would you be working on our children? Would you use the efforts? Yes, we should have our children memorize scripture. We should give them certain experiences. We should be careful in the ways they are instructed. But then all of that is ultimately under the care of God. And yet this goes the other way too, because sometimes it's not just godly parents who have ungodly children after they're rearing them. Sometimes ungodly parents have godly children. King Saul gives birth to Jonathan, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Here, we're looking at Manasseh and his son Amon, but then they're going to give birth to Josiah, a great reformer. So, yes, we work and we pray and we cry out, God, would you establish the work of our hands as we humbly recognize God's role and our role. In this case here, as we're looking at Manasseh, he has fallen far from his father Hezekiah, and thus he does the very abominable practices that the nations did the very acts that caused God to drive them out. And then in verses 3 and on, the author details all of these abominations for us. The tragedy is that his father, Hezekiah, as we've already mentioned, went to great efforts to get rid of all these things. And yet within a generation, Manasseh brings these sins back. First, he rebuilds the high places. And if you've been with us as we've gone through First and Second Kings, you'd remember that was a constant refrain that the kings of Judah did not remove them. And yet they were removed, and then Manasseh brings them back. Second, he erected an altar to Baal. Third, he built Asherah poles like Ahab, king of Israel. Now this is again a reminder of the utter folly of sin. You know, if there's any king in Israel not to emulate, it's Ahab. And yet Manasseh chooses him as his model. It's like hearing of a business going bankrupt and then calling them up. Hey, could we have your business plan? Or seeing a building collapse and then going, man, we got to get that architect. He really knows how to build buildings. What? Those are the people who just ruined it all. Why would you want to go listen to them? And yet that's who Manasseh is following. On top of those three things, we see in verse 3 that Manasseh forth bows to the gods of heaven and serves them. 
Then verse 4, we're told of the fifth thing, that he begins to desecrate the temple by using it for false worship. In there, he builds new altars. My dad works in real estate, and he manages rental homes. And from time to time, tenants will move out, and they have to get the house ready for the next tenant. But my dad can only do what the owner wants him to do. He can't go into the rental home and go, you know, an open floor plan would be better. Let's knock this wall out. You know, I don't like the exterior. Let's get rid of the siding and put brick up. Why not? Because he's not the owner. He's overseeing what someone else is telling him to do. Manasseh is an overseer in the temple. He's not the owner. He doesn't have the right to go in and go, you know, let's move the altar over here. I think that's going to be better. Oh, you know what? Let's rearrange. Let's put new things. And yet Manasseh is acting as though he rules the place. But it's not just that he is rearranging furniture. For verse 5 tells us that he built altars to the host of heaven in the two courts of the temple. You know, Manasseh is creating a Jewish pantheon, a court filled with gods. Manasseh thinks of religion the way many people do, that we, as humans, are doing whatever we can to pacify the gods so we can control them, so they can give us what we want. And yet, true worship is not about us controlling God, but Him controlling us. It is the submission of our lives and our will to God and giving Him control. But Manasseh sees the exact opposite. So sadly, tragically, verse 6, the sixth thing of his horrible practices, Manasseh begins to burn his sons as sacrifices. Related to this, he starts interacting with fortune tellers, omens, mediums, necromancers, the type of things that King Saul did. And what happened to King Saul? He lost his throne. Again, Manasseh is emulating all the worst people. And seventh, we're told that he puts the image of Asherah in the temple. This is like someone in the midst of adultery and going and anywhere there's a wedding picture, putting up on a picture of their adulterer. I mean, there could not be a more in-your-face, God, I don't care one bit about you. In the very temple, he places images of other gods. And so the section ends with a summary that Judah, like Israel, doesn't listen. Thus Manasseh leads Judah in the very wicked things that God punished the nations before them. Actually, the passage states it more strongly than that. For Manasseh, we're told in verse 9, led them to do more evil than the wicked nations had done. And due to this, Israel should not be surprised that judgment will soon come. Well, the first section gives us two important things to consider, applications, and I'll just note them briefly. First, each generation must persevere in the faith, and we can't rest in the work of prior generations. Godliness can never be about their faith or other people's faithfulness, but it must become my faith. Not is the Lord your shepherd, or is the Lord their shepherd, or the Lord is the shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd. That it becomes your faith. Well, what about you? Have you owned the faith? Is it what you believe, 
Or is it merely, well, this is where my parents bring me, and that's what they believe? Have you personally seen your own need for a Savior, and have you trusted Christ? Well, second, this passage reminds us of the mystery of providence. That is the mystery of God's actions. We're a church that values thinking and reading, and sometimes people like us can make a mistake. And that is that we think, oh, I understand theology. I know God. Okay, well, let me back up. You can understand theology and books, and that is good, and I would encourage that. That never means you fully grasp God. You know, there are things in life that we have to say we don't understand. You know, here is one of those situations. Manasseh is one of the worst kings. And you know what? He has the longest reign of any king in the Old Testament. Well, how do those two things add up? I don't know. How come things happen like people giving their lives to go serve God on the mission field. They give up years to go to schooling and training and learn the language, and then they get there, and within a week, one of them dies. Why does God allow that? Why does God allow parents to sacrifice, to bring into their home adopted children who are at risk, and then those children end up rebelling and hating the very parents who've given them sacrificial love for years? I don't know. Of course, We can look at broad themes. We can look at why God allows suffering. We can see these things, and those are true, and we should continue to affirm them. And yet sometimes we need to just say, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm sorry, and I know it hurts, and I love you, and I know God loves you too. There is a mystery to God's actions that we don't always understand. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. And all this is really leading to the second section, and that is God has given these indicators that judgment will come. He's given these statements that they're worse than the nations, that they're worse than all these other kings who are judged, and that leads really to the next section, verses 10 through 18, the tragic punishment. Second section of the tragic punishment in verses 10 through 18. There we see that God sends prophets to tell of coming judgment against Judah. He declares that since Manasseh did more wickedly than the Amorites and served idols, such a calamity will come upon Judah that people's ears will tingle. Now it's interesting the word he chose to use. He didn't say that Manasseh was worse than the kings of Judah, which is true. But the Amorites. Now, why did he say the Amorites? Well, I think it's very important. We're going to spend a little time talking about this. If you want, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, keeping a hand or something in 2 Kings 21, because this is tied to an important aspect of Israel's history and one that many people, even many Christians, find troubling. And that is, how can the Old Testament seem, I use that word seem on purpose, seem to endorse genocide. How can God condone, let alone command, the killing of whole tribes of people? For example, I had everyone turn to Deuteronomy 7, and let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1, there it says, When the Lord your God brings you 
into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Thus there's this command here to Israel, whether we like it or not, that they were to devote some nations to complete destruction. Well, why would God command them to do this, though? Well, there's an answer kind of given implicitly here, and then an answer given broadly. The answer is verse 4, that if they allow these people to stay in the land, then they will turn Israel from following after God. Now, that's only part of the answer, because the other answer, the bigger answer, is implied through the rest of the Old Testament. The issue is not who they are as a people, but it's because of their sin. In Genesis 15, God is renewing his covenant with Abraham. He's telling him, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the land. I'm going to bless your descendants. But then he says in Genesis 15:16, and they, referring to Abraham's descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. Remember that phrase is how we're getting here. The Amorites in 2 Kings 21, the very people that Manasseh is worse than, that's what he's talking about here. They'll come back in the fourth generation, Genesis 15, 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, hopefully I can tie this together and it makes sense. Israel, the nation, comes to the land of Canaan, the promised land, to remove the people as God's means of punishment against them for their sin. The reason God commanded Israel to devote them to destruction is because of their ongoing sin that had reached such a point that God's punishment against them was removal. Thus, we must recognize that to grasp what the Bible is saying here is that the destruction is not called against those nations, as though the issue is, well, they have a different skin color, or they speak a different language, or we've had years of hostilities. None of that is the issue. Rather, the devotion to destruction is against any person or nation that sins in too heinous a way. The wages of sin is death, not time out. And that's not just for individuals, that's for nations. And we see that implied here in Deuteronomy 7. Look down again. We mentioned verse 4, that if they marry, they will intermarry. They'll be led astray. But look down at verse 26, the end of the chapter. And you, Deuteronomy 7, 26, shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. What is God saying here? He's saying the very thing that he's calling Israel to do, to vote, to devote nations to destruction, will happen to them if they do the exact same sins. So the issue when the Bible is condemning, wiping out whole groups of people, is their sin. Not that they were of any ethnicity or that they were some kind of color. 
The issue is sin, and that is what is happening if you flip back to 2 Kings 21. That's why the author mentions, you are worse than the Amorites. He's saying, Israel, you have gotten to the point that you are so sinful that all you deserve now is to be completely destroyed. And Israel had tasted of this before. Because what happened when Israel conquered Jericho? Well, one man, Achan, took some of the things that were devoted to destruction. And what happened in the next battle? Israel began to lose. They became a nation devoted to destruction until they removed the things from their midst. And so the judgment that will come, God says in 2 Kings 21.12, if you turn back there, is will be so bad that their ears will tingle. A phrase used when he was describing the judgment against Eli's house due to his son's sin. And then he adds in verse 13, that he'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. Sarah and I have done a couple bathroom remodels. And one thing that I've learned is that after demolition, the most important thing to do is to make sure everything is square and level. And how do I know it's important? Because I didn't do it. And I'd go to hang up products that were nice and square, and why doesn't this fit? Well, because the wall was not square. The wall was not level. And it made everything frustrating. So you have to find out, how is it level? So you get out a plumb bob, and you get out a level. Well, in their days, they used measuring lines. And that is what God's saying. I'm going to come put the measuring line over you, Jerusalem. And how are you going to compare? Are you going to line up? Are you going to be level with God's word? No, you're like Samaria. You're like Ahab. You are going to be punished because you're not on the level. Not only that, you're going to be like when one eats a dish and then turns it over and wipes it out. You finish, you wash the bowl, and then what do you do? You turn it over because you're completely done. That's what God is saying by that illustration. Look, Israel, Judah, more specifically, you are going to be completely done because of your sins. So verse 14, God goes on, that he'll forsake the remnant of his heritage and give them into the hands of his enemies. Now, a couple chapters, a few chapters before this, 2 Kings 17, you can read of the end of the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes. They are now all gone, and we're reading of the end of the nation of Judah. And there's very similar language here. And like Israel was given these horrible punishments, so is Judah. And really, they're given the worst punishment in chapter 21, 14, by God saying that he will forsake them. And what was the ultimate curse against Adam and Eve? It's that they died in their relationship with God and they were banished from Eden and the presence of God. So what's the great promise of Jesus that he comes? And then he goes and he ascends, but he first tells his disciples, Behold, I am with you always. That's the great promise. That's why in Revelation 21, when the Apostle John sees the new heavens and new earth, he says, he hears God say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The great curse of sin is we've lost God's presence. The great blessing of salvation is that we will be with God. 
And then Revelation 21 goes on to give the things that we think are the blessings. They are blessings, but they flow from God's presence. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Thus here, for God to tell Judah that I am forsaking you is for them to receive the greatest punishment they could. Well, why? Again, the author makes it clear, verse 15, because they've constantly provoked God with their idolatry and rebellion. Notice what is said next in verse 16. For when people turn from loving the true and living God, they'll eventually also turn from truly loving God's image. We see that because Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. Now, my point is not that unbelievers are always unloving people. That's not true. Sometimes, tragically, unbelievers are more kind or more loving than people who profess to follow Christ. But the point is that the more one's foundation, not just their lips, but the foundation of their lives moves from loving God, the more they'll move away from truly loving people. Here, Manasseh has clearly moved from loving God, and what begins to happen? Jerusalem begins to be killed, sorry, filled with killed people. Why does he do this? We're not told. Was it personal revenge? Removing detractors? Maybe just bloodlust? Where we're not told, neither are we told when and how. However, tradition tells us that Manasseh had the prophet Isaiah put in a hollow log and then sawn in two, of which Hebrews 11.37 may refer. What's interesting is you go through, if you try and match up, when did this prophet rule when did he speak for god when did these prophets exist you can kind of line them up and see where they were but there's no clear prophet during manasseh's time he doesn't want to hear what they have to say and so here jerusalem is filled from one end to another with his murders and in case we hadn't forgotten In case we had forgotten, the author reminds us, and this is on top of all the other evil that he did in the sight of the Lord. And this section is reminding us that God's just judgment is coming. Now this is not just the God of the Old Testament, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And we saw that even earlier when Justin read for us Revelation 19. There it began. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah, meaning praise God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for, what is it that they're praising God for? His just and true judgments. They find joy. They praise God because He will come and judge. Later, John tells us of one called Faithful and True coming on a white horse in Revelation 19:15 and 16 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that leads to the last section. It's going to be very short. The conquering of tragedy because here we've had this 55 year reign of manasseh 
he is gone, and his son Ammon comes in his place for the very short reign of two years. Ammon somehow escaped the child's sacrifices, but he didn't escape his father's idolatry. Thus he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. In this case, it is like father, like son. He worships and forsakes, he worships false idols and forsakes the Lord. And so he dies, and yet then his son, Josiah, becomes king. And Josiah will bring spiritual reformation to the nation that we shall begin to look at next week. So it looks horrible, and yet God has a plan, and he removes these wicked kings. He conquers them, and he raises up a king who will honor him. Thus, while history seems to be nothing but a tragedy, we see the tragedy conquered. Evil did not prevail. Josiah will bring reformation. And yet you will go, well, yes, he will, but then the next king is going to lead them back down. And so it may seem, well, look, this is a cycle. Good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings. And yet, one day, it will come to an end. One day, Revelation 19 will not just be a future foretelling of what will come. It will come true, and Christ will come and judge the nations. So how can judgment bring joy? What can bring joy when you realize that all that has been done wrong will be made right? Isn't this the challenge we have with forgiveness? We're told to forgive and we think, but it's not fair. They're going to get away with it. And yet God's forgiveness never allows anyone to get away with it. Judgment is coming. God's judgment will make sure no one ever gets away with anything. Everything will be punished. Every deed done in the dark will be brought to the light. Every word muttered in secret will be made known. Judgment can also bring joy when you realize that one day we'll never oscillate back again. One party gets power. They get rid of everything the other party did. The next party gets the power. They get rid of everything. Back and forth. Back and forth. One day it will end. Because it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. And on that day, not only will sin be judged, it will be eradicated from us. No more temptation, evil desires, or out-of-control urges. No more lies, letdowns, backstabbings, or failures. No more shame, suffering, or loneliness. God's judgment will come, and sin and all its effects will be done away with. And yet, while that brings us joy as we think about all the sin that's been done against us, God's just judgment should also bring us fear as we think about the sins that we have done to others. As I said, on the day of judgment, every sin will be punished. Either you will be punished for your sin, or if you trust in Christ, He has taken that punishment for your sin. For those who have faith in Jesus, who submit to Him as Lord, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because that condemnation went on Christ. So is life a tragedy where it's all going to end in suffering? Or is life a comedy where life will end well? Well, without Jesus coming, it would be a tragedy. 
It would end with no hope. But due to Christ, your life can end well. For all eternity, you can know God. You can be in His presence. God gives us examples, like here, 2 Kings 21, reminding us that, yes, evil rises. We'll see next week, evil falls. But that will one day only be completed when Christ comes again. May He be our hope. May we see in Him the conquering of all tragedy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you stir us to have that hope? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So Lord, we place that trust in Him, and yet we are prone to wander. So would you stir us again to trust you, to follow you as we go out this week? Would we be faithful representatives for you? When we do stumble and fall, would we be quick to confess our sins, knowing that you are quick to forgive? It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.